have your Bible with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 2. Beautiful song, Luke chapter 2. I don't know how many of you follow football that closely, as far as the NFL is concerned, but Aaron Rodgers was traded from the Packers to the Jets. He's going to be the savior of the New York Jets. And on his fourth play from scrimmage in his first game, which isn't isn't funny, I'm not making fun of him, just on his fourth play from scrimmage, he tore his Achilles. He will miss the entire rest of the season. And he was going to be the savior of the Jets. Uh, every four years, we elect the savior of America, depending on who you vote for, right? Then he gets impeached or overruled or... By the House and Senate, he gets, you know, voted out during the next election. Some might think a new pastor is the savior of a church, right? A new business is the savior of a community. A new product will be the savior of the company's budget. Yet it never seems to work out. Never seems to work out. Even the saviors that genuinely mean well can't ever be true saviors. Because no mere human being can meet a human's greatest need for a Savior, which is the forgiveness of our sins. Caesar Augustus genuinely thought he was the Savior of the world. Genuinely. Of the entire world. When he visited Greek, the Greek part of Asia in 21 BC, the cult of Caesar was at a fever pitch. Dedications and speeches there that we find in historical records and archives referred to him as Savior. This is the bringer of good tidings, they said. Some have uh, have him described God, the Son of God. That's literally what they thought of Caesar. There were those who argued that in him the long-awaited Messiah had come. Right? For the world, bringing peace and happiness to mankind. Peace in our time. That's what they said. Right? In this text this morning, there is Caesar, the great Augustus Caesar, and his decree, and there's Mary's firstborn son and his feeding trough. And what we refer to as the Christmas story puts Caesar in his place. The true Savior of the world gives all that He promises. Let me pray. Father, I thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank You, God. Without Him, there is no hope of salvation. There is no Savior. Lord, all our hopes rest in you. And I pray this would become apparent through this text this morning for the believing and the unbelieving in this place that we all may leave saying together, Christ is Lord and Christ is Savior. I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lied him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. In the end. When Luke told us the story of Zechariah, 
He gave us a Jewish time setting, set it in that framework with his priestly service in the temple. But for Jesus' birth, notice that the frame of reference here is the secular and universal setting when it took place, which was during the reign of Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavian. He ruled from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D., so about 30 years before the birth of Christ to 14 years after the birth of Christ. He decreed an enrollment in verse 1. You see in verse 3 that people obeyed. When Caesar issued decrees, things happened. People listened. During his long reign, he carried out two great tax reforms that encompassed the whole, the entirety of his great empire. The Greeks called the empire of Caesar Augustus the world. That's how they thought of it, or the Earth's circuit. At his death, the Roman Empire covered 3,340,000 square miles. That's more than the mainland of the United States of America. It had a population between 70 and 100 million, which in the ancient world is a big deal. Augustus Caesar was without doubt the power of the day. No question. A census like this took a long time. It began with the registration of the population, land ownership, people's fortunes. The government has to know those things. Then it finished with actual taxation for all of that. Congratulations, you own land, you have money, let me have some. That's basically how it worked. Citizens of the empire would appear in their hometowns to register and record their information. Quirinius, this other man mentioned here, this was the governor of Syria, this region that they were in. He was a Roman nobleman who sometimes had important commissions as a military commander, governor in the Near East, so he's probably a legate of Caesar with particular authority for these types of things to make sure they were enforced at the local level. But something subversive is going on here in the text. Why are we being given these historical markers? Why do we care about the reign of Caesar Augustus or the fact that Quirinius, Quirinius was governor of Syria? Those things are not important for catechesis in the faith, for teaching and instruction in the faith, which is why Luke wrote this gospel. The great Caesar Augustus and his empirical census and Rome are being set up as merely the background here for someone else. The focus for Luke immediately is on a man named Joseph. We don't even know who he is when he's mentioned here. From Galilee, his, his home was in the little town of Bethlehem. Now, since the land in Palestine usually belonged to the family... And co-ownership, which was common, caused a lot of confusion and created a mess for tax authorities. It was all the more important for Joseph to travel back home to Bethlehem, the city of David, by the way. Which, if that was the one to whom God had promised in 2 Samuel 7:16, And your house and your kingship shall be made firm forever before me. Your throne will remain established forever. Now, how many Augustuses have there been in world history? How many alleged saviors who will finally, no, this time actually bring world peace and prosperity? I don't think it's a stretch to say that many American Christians hope that's what Donald Trump would be. Right? He would be the savior we needed. He may not even get on the ballot the next time. So for whatever we might think of him, he's not the savior that probably many hoped he would be. Caesar does what people in power do, right? He relocates people at his own whim. He interrupts their lives, forces them to travel very long ways sometimes, to live in overfilled shelters, which is very comfortable for families, 
or crowd themselves in among domestic animals, all to demand money from them. I need to know you're there so that I can get money from you. That's what this is. And yet at the same time, in all this, he is a tool for the one who is actually in control of the whole world and who long before Augustus lived or ruled had said through his prophet in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So Augustus was an errand boy to get things in place for God's will to be accomplished for all humanity, even though he meant to use humanity to mark his territory and enlarge his coffers. So let's put this rich man north of Richmond in the background in this text. He's a time stamp. His empire has since literally decayed into the dust. Nobody is afraid of Rome anymore. Nobody speaks of Rome anymore. But by getting Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, which is an 85 to 90 mile journey on foot, the gospel shows us, as Vogueert says, who really has the power over all people. And what really happens, hidden behind what seems to be happening. Mary's hour, Mary's hour finally comes while she's in Bethlehem. There she gives birth to her firstborn son, and she wraps him in swaddling cloths. She does that. Now that in and of itself is a sign of loneliness and abandonment for her and her little baby. There were no midwives. There were no aides. There was no mother's hand to hold. Just her and Joseph in the overcrowded, or just her and Joseph and the Savior of all humanity. Right? They couldn't find a place to stay in the overcrowded shelters. They found a place among the animals. Whom God also created. Any peasant level home would have been set up like this, where the animals shared space in one half of a room, maybe. Or, more likely, it could have been something, maybe like a grotto of some kind, many of which were found in ancient Palestine, often used for stalls for domestic animals. In church tradition, anyway, a certain grotto was found just outside of Bethlehem in the year 130 at precisely the place a person traveling from Jerusalem would have come to after searching the village streets for a place to stay. The church of the nativity was built over that site. In a place like this, the crib would have been an indentation that someone had carved out of the soft limestone there, or a manger where they, the animals would eat. That's where they laid little baby Jesus, wrapped in swaddling cloth. All of you, I'm sure, know this story. But it wasn't Caesar Augustus. You notice that. It wasn't Quirinius or the news media today or the Internet. It didn't happen during any of those things that we have today. And Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, with all this authority, didn't have anything to do with announcing or welcoming this baby. Because none of that was needed to announce the birth of the Savior of the world. None of that was needed to host the birth of the Savior of the world. The commoner did that. God intends that the gospel that comes with His child would be for all humanity. To do that, to make it clear that it's for everyone, God brings the child through the lowliest and most common of means. He works from the bottom up, not from the top down. Because in this moment, truly remember what's happening here. The mighty are being pulled down from their throne. The humble are being exalted. They don't know that. But that's what's happening because God is saying power, authority, salvation, the Savior is here. 
in this manger, in this little obscure town. Not there, not in Rome, not in Syria. Here. God is saying, this is who the King is. This is who the Savior is. They're being pulled down from their thrones, rendered irrelevant as actual power in the world, and they have no clue. We pick it up in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. The wilderness in this region started just outside of Bethlehem. This is where the sheep would graze out beyond the cultivated fields. Watching over them was hard work. It was the kind that most people avoided if they could. You know, it honestly makes me think of coal mining. I, I wonder if God's plan was for all this to happen in our valley. Then maybe these angels would have appeared late at night way down in the mines, I think. I don't mean that coal miners are poor and lowly. But I know it's hard work that most people don't want to do certainly isn't for everybody. And such laborers, hard workers, real laborers, tend to be overlooked or disregarded by those with power and with wealth. But this is one of the reasons why, then, it's so significant that the shepherds were the first to hear this news in the entire universe, that the Messiah had come. They were the first ones who will gather around Him, who will worship Him and recognize Him for who He is. In this culture, these are poor, underprivileged men who received the worst work in town and had to be awake while the rest of the town was sleeping every night. And the angels come to them with good news of great joy for all people. right? Because if God is appearing to shepherds, then whatever He's doing isn't going to exclude anybody because they don't have enough The shepherds are shown that what the angels say is literally true. No one is too poor. No one is too downtrodden or too of low in a state to be invited. The ranking of people no longer applies when it comes to who has access to Jesus. God means to save even those that society would place on the bottom too far out to reach the goods. There was no chance whatsoever that a commoner would have ever been invited to attend the birth of a Caesar. But the true king of the universe comes quietly and without money to those who work the third shift on the bottom ring of their society. The angel emphasizes the word Savior here. It means rescuer. It even means a helper in every need because that's who Jesus is. Savior was a title that had been used among certain princes in Greece and the Middle East and of course was taken up eventually by the Caesars with both hands in Rome, they wanted to be glorified as the saviors of their own people. Nothing has changed when it comes to those in power. And there's much truth to be found in the saying that any attempt to save the world usually has behind it the actual desire to rule the world. 
There's only one Savior that has the actual ability to do it, to save people. And rather than taking lives and stepping on others to ascend to the top, He will get low and give up His life that others might live, that others might have, while everything is taken from Him. Jesus is the Messiah in verse 11, the Christ. In Hebrew it means the anointed or the anointed one, which, by the way, that's why Jesus is called Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ. Christ is not a last name, it's a title. And He is Lord, which means that He is God. And when they find Him, when the shepherds find Him, the sign that He's this child, the angel proclaims, isn't a massive parade. It isn't orations and speeches or great pomp. The sign that tells them that this is the Savior, this is Christ the Lord, is that He will be wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Make note of that. When God wanted to say, this is how you'll know it's the Savior, He's in a position of complete vulnerability, poverty, abandonment by the world and its powers and authority, overlooked, unknown of. In other words, the sign is that He's accessible and approachable. This is the God who in the Old Testament made it clear, don't get too close to me or you will die. You you can't come into the Holy of Holies, not in the tabernacle, not in the temple once it was built. As this is happening, there is a temple in Jerusalem at this time. There is a Holy of Holies in there that only the high priest can go into once a year. And if he messes anything up in there, he dies instantaneously. Not because the Lord is capricious and mean, but because He is holy and we are most certainly not. And yet here, God the Son, God in human flesh, God in the person of Jesus Christ is a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. What is God trying to say with all this? Why this way? Ignored by the world, His birth is heralded by a multitude of the heavenly host. In verse 13, they shout or sing. We, we, of course, sing angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains. They were singing or saying, as it says here, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. In verse 14. That sentence is heard one of two ways. Oh, then it's not for me. Or, thank you, God. I appreciate the recognition. That's how we hear that. Those with whom He's pleased, that's not me. That's me, right? This is not a peace that can be won by war or by force or with performance. That God is peaceful because we've done our part. Or God has brought peace through conquering all of His enemies here. Now that will happen one day, but it's not happening here. This is the peace that is won when sin, death, and hell are going to be conquered. This is the peace that is won by Jesus between God and humans. It is the peace brought about by the forgiveness of sins that this child will grow up and give his sinless life, sinless life to provide. You and I cannot please God. It is impossible. Why? Because God says it's impossible. Paul makes it clear in Romans. 
those who are in the flesh, so as we are born into the world, cannot please God. It's impossible. So if there's peace between us and God, we didn't do it. He's not pleased with us because of something we have done. He's not pleased with Israel for their performance. They don't have a king right now. They're in basic exile, occupied by a foreign force in their own land that worships pagan deities. Who could actually achieve such a thing? To please God. Have you ever tried to please anybody? Do you know how hard it is? Do you know how hard it is? Do you know how hard it is to please the people that love you anyway? It's just, it's, you, you, you can't please people. Go to a restaurant. Go to a store. Go to a church. Go anywhere. You can't please. You didn't do it good enough. You didn't say it kindly enough. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. I wanted you to do this and you did that. And You can't please anybody. How in the world do you please God? We don't please God. We weren't pleasing God. That's not why He came. But rather than cast us out, He comes in the person of His Son to live the life that is pleasing to God for us. When you say the name Jesus, learn to at least think in your head after you say it, for me. For me. When you read of something He does, in Scripture, for me, for me, for me. We are all shepherds spiritually. That's what's happening. It's not that God considers us worthless. It's that when it comes to what we have to give to God for our salvation, we are all out in the field, cut off from all the advantages that one would think could gain us an audience with God. But He doesn't ignore us. That's the beauty here. That's what God is saying by appearing to the shepherds. I'm not ignoring you. I'm not overlooking you in your poverty and lack of performance and status. Again, it's not that He considers us worthless. It's when it comes to what we have to give to Him, we don't have anything. That this was announced to shepherds that, by the way, not only Rome, of course, wouldn't have anything to do with Nazareth wouldn't have anything to do with Him either. It's not like in Rome, these are nothings, but in Nazareth, no, in Nazareth, they're still nothings. Spiritually, that's the case. It doesn't matter if you have a lot or very little. When it comes to whether or not you have what it takes to please God, you're impoverished. You work the third shift. You're on the bottom rung of society. You don't have anything. Neither do I. Or I don't have any business preaching. This is who and what we are in our sinfulness and in our rebellion against God. And Christians, it never comes to the point where God is now accepting us because now we've done pretty good. Now we've got a track record behind us. And now it's, it's like he made a good investment. And so I know that God loves me because I used to be like this, but now I'm like this. No, God loves you 
like he loved you and for the reasons he loved you in the beginning. Because what does the scripture refer to our good deeds as, even if we are God's people? Filthy rags. It's God. You say, so the good things I do don't have any meaning? No, they don't have any value to gain God's approval for you. They may be very good things that your neighbor needs and benefits from, and praise God for that. But are they good enough to get you standing with God? No. When it comes to that, they're worthless. You can't depend on them. You can't lean on them, not for your salvation and not for your assurance, Christian. That's not what they're for. We might even mean well or work very hard, but we just don't have it within us to reach all the way up to God. So what does He do? He comes down to us. When this moment comes, where does God go? And where? what does where He's going say about what He's trying to do and what He thinks of our ability? He goes to the lowest place He can go in an obscure town that nobody cares about. Now that either thrills you or it offends you. What does God mean? I, what do you mean, Tony? I had a dear gentleman say that I was preaching through Ecclesiastes years ago uh, at a church plant, a new church, and a guy that had been visiting, he was not a believer, he comes up to me and he's like, are, are you saying that God says like everything I do is vanity? It's just, just dust? I'm like, yeah, he's like, that's very offensive. And I'm like, praise God. You see it. You see it. The fact that God doesn't want what you have either thrills you or it offends you. And your response will determine whether or not He receives you. Get low. And when you realize, yeah, I can't do that either then it's time to receive Christ. Jesus comes for those who have nothing to offer. That's all of us. Again, church is not a reward for the good people. It's a place where people that don't deserve what God gives gather to celebrate it and give it to other people that don't have anything either. Let us become like shepherds and receive this good news with great joy because it's for us. The glory of Rome, what did the glory of Rome create? Well, death, disease, war, immorality, pestilence, and slavery for most of the known world, unless you lived in Caesar's house, basically. They didn't even love their own military. You were as expendable as the day is long in Rome, unless you were Caesar. See, the glory of earthly kingdoms always comes on the back of somebody else's death or somebody else's oppression or somebody else's poverty or lack. It's unavoidable. The world has a system. It's built on right the money and power and land and all these things and you either have these things or you don't. And it doesn't matter. In this 
scenario, it doesn't matter whose fault that is. It just either you have it or you don't. That's the world. There can't be peace here without war because people are evil. Right? So th- there can't be peace without war. There, there can't be life without death. There can't even be real love without hate. You realize this is how broken the world is. If you really love people, there are going to be things you absolutely hate. And people you absolutely hate. Because they threaten the people you love. For anything to be achieved here, for anything to be held on to here, it takes money at the very least, which means taxes. Right? You've seen that little picture on the internet? I think I'll go fishing today. And where's the government? They have their hand out. Hey, you want to fish? Give me my share. Right? There's, you're gonna, you need a license for that. Give me some money if you want to fish. Give me some money if you want to hunt for meat for your own table. I need my share if you're going to do that. You want to drive a car that you bought? Well, we're going to tax you on that. We're going to tax you. We're not going to tell you how much you owe. You're going to have to guess how much you owe. And if you get it wrong, we're going to charge you for getting it wrong. It's absurd. Absurd. The world is absurd. All these things. It means classes. It means wealth for some. Right, right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm not talking about that right now. I'm not talking about... I'm not assigning value. I'm saying this is the way it is. So wealth for some, yes, but poverty and struggle at least for most. You see the picture of Paris Hilton, rich debutante, hotel heiress, wearing a shirt that says, Stop being poor. (laughs) Okay. Okay. But the glory of God. See, that's the glory of Rome. That's what the glory of Rome creates. The glory of God, it creates peace. It creates peace. In the Bible, the word for peace is the same word for freedom. It speaks to God's good order and the harmony and joy that prevail when God's will is accomplished. And His will for you is your salvation. His will for you is the forgiveness of all your sins and His gift to you of all His righteousness in its place. Just take it. Confess your sinfulness and receive Jesus. Confess that your righteousness is not enough and rest in Jesus. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. First act of great faith in the birth narrative here, the first two chapters of Luke, came from Mary, really. In chapter 1, verse 38, here the great act of faith comes from the shepherds, first of all, who respond immediately to the word of the angels. They don't delay. Right? That's how you hear the gospel when you know that you're poor. Seriously? Where do I get it? 
right? That's the actual right response. In Mary, it sounded like this. Let it be to me according to your word. In the shepherds, it sounds like this. Where can we find this? Faith always sounds like, oh, since I have nothing, where do I get you? They have to see, they have to know, and they have to know right now. You see, these aren't stupid men. No. Because they're lowly or even poor. God never says that. They perceive what this is. When they speak of what the Lord has made known to us, that's a very important phrase in Luke's Gospel in particular. It refers to divine revelation from God that is all of grace and therefore can only be received by faith. God is making something known here that we didn't know, couldn't discover, couldn't get to, couldn't figure out. And God in His grace says, here, let me give this to you. Let me show this to you. The Gospel's all wrapped up in that tone. God sending His Son and making His birth known to them. They know it's an act of pure grace. They know who God is. They know what they are. Like, we just saw a multitude of the heavenly host. Where is this baby? We don't realize that's what's happening when, when, when we come in here. I don't realize it most of the time. When we start singing, you're singing with heaven. When the choir sings, that they're... They're singing with heaven. You're witnessing what the heavenly host sings. Right? When, when, whether it's me or someone else, if, 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 we're, if we're preaching the gospel, what you're hearing is heaven talking to you. Not, again, not, please understand that. I, hearing me is not hearing heaven. I mean, if what's coming out of my mouth is from God is gospel, you're hearing heaven proclaiming peace to you. That's what happens when we gather, whether it's Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, God willing. Right? God is for us. He's come near to us. They receive it by going to see the sign. And it is being made known to us. We receive this as true by faith in God that it is. That's it. How, how, how do I get what you're talking about? You agree with God. You say, all right, I believe what you're saying. I, I, I receive your gift. That's it. And remember, before you think, well, that, that's, that's, not, that's what the world can't do. That's what none of us are born with the ability to do. So we're going to need grace just to receive it. So when you realize that, when you realize that you're bankrupt, you don't walk away. You say, I believe, help my unbelief. Please, Lord, don't pass me by. Have mercy on me. And He will stop and come to you. What a gift. Come and see. That's, that's salvation. This is for you. Come and see. They come to Mary and Joseph, find the baby lying in the manger, confirming the words of the angel from verse 12. Then they go back to work. It's one of the most amazing parts of the story. Their destiny is forever altered. Their lives forever changed. And they go back to work. See, these, 
These are men, okay? Not talking down on women when I say that. But I love that. We got, we got the gift. The Messiah is here. What are you doing? I'm, I'm going back to work. We, we're not done with our shift. We've got to get back to work. But they'll never be the same. God transforms work too. Glorifying and praising God. They go back to work glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. That's all the Christian witness is, beloved. That's all it is. It requires no status, no performance, no seminary classes. We're not proud eagles. We are mockingbirds. We just tell the world what we've seen. That's it. What we've heard. That's it. What God did for us by sending His Son to rescue us. It's not you that make you a competent witness. It's what you have. And that was given to you by God. Don't think that if you don't craft the perfect argument, the perfect words in the moment, that you're responsible for someone else's unbelief and rejection of it. Absolutely not. This is good news. Everything has changed. Light dawned in the world that night. Now that Jesus is born in the text, the rest of the Christmas story in these verses is about the proclamation of the good news of His birth and three different reactions to that good news. We saw that of the shepherds who confirmed what they had been told with their eyes, right? Then those who heard the story with their ears in verse 18, they responded in wonder and amazement. But Jesus' mother Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. In verse 19, one commentator writes that what Mary treasured in her heart was that the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger was the God-given sign of the Christ whose birth signals glory in heaven and peace on earth. Did did Mary really get all of that? I, I think she did. Given what the angel had told her and her faith, it's likely she did and received those words with joy. I bet it thrilled her heart when those shepherds came. She knew what these things meant. They confirmed the word of the Lord to her. All three of these responses are responses of faith. Faith that worships God in glory and praise in verse 20. The gospel that was proclaimed in the Christmas story produces the proclamation of the good news. It produces faith. Paul is clear that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. All the power to do what the Word says it will do is in that Word. It produces faith and it creates the worship of Jesus who is Himself the very presence of God among us. The Word made flesh for you and for me. Now, we probably wouldn't know anything about all this, what we read here in chapter 2 in the providence of God if Mary hadn't hidden and treasured all this in her heart and had to tell it to Luke in person, that's how he got this information. We probably wouldn't even have what we know as the Christmas story without Mary in God's providence, I mean. The mother of Jesus becomes another witness to the truth of Jesus. Beloved, it didn't matter that Mary had to wrap the baby in cloths all by herself, showing the isolation and abandonment of her and the baby. God said this was the Savior. That's what God says about this baby. 
That's what heaven says about this baby. And it's still saying it. God sent a heavenly chorus to proclaim good news and peace. He will always be isolated and abandoned by the majority of the world. But he is no less its savior. Earlier I referenced the song, Rich Men North of Richmond. Right. How many of you heard that song? None of you? Okay, all right, okay, all right, all right, good, I'm glad. I didn't want that to not land at all. But he, Oliver Anthony, picks up on something in that song, and that's the angst and frustration and anger at the hypocrisy and self-absorption of most elected leaders. They are supposed to serve their constituents and care for them, but most of the time they do whatever it takes to profit from them. Now, how do such people continue to get votes, right? How does such an obviously broken and corrupted system keep perpetuating itself? And why do people keep believing that the system can be fixed by using that system? A system that profits from you using it is not going to help you end it. So why? Why do we keep doing the same things, expecting different results? Because people desperately want a Savior. We know that we need one. We're all going to come to a point in our lives where we realize that there's something we really want that we can't get no matter how hard we try. Or we're going to come to the realization after getting what we thought would ease the ache inside, that there must be something more because it didn't. Worse than coming or harder to deal with than coming to the point that what you wanted, that when you get it, it doesn't do the trick, is when you get what you thought you needed and it still doesn't do the trick. It still doesn't bring what you thought it would bring. That's because no matter what you fill the emptiness with, the emptiness isn't fit for anything but Christ. We all realize at some point in our lives that we can't get what we need. So if someone promises to provide exactly what you need, what are we going to do? We're going to respond. Oh, finally, thank you. You can get me this. This guy will get us that. This lady will get us that. This person will finally respect us. This person will finally listen to me. This person will finally love me. This person will finally recognize me and give me the respect that I deserve. And on and on and on and on it goes. Here's the problem. Those aren't the things that you need. That's not what a human being needs to be made whole. We may need them to survive. Some of them, like food and water and air. But what about our salvation? What about our souls? Because this isn't all there is. This isn't all there is. Everybody in here knows that. Whether you think I'm a nut and a liar, you know that I'm right when I say that. You know there's more than this. God put that in you. You have eternity in your heart. You know that when you die, you don't stop. Now what about that? Who has the money for that? Who has enough respect for that? Who has enough love for that? 
What if the person promising to be your savior not only lacks the ability to provide all that you need, but doesn't even know what that is? There are all kinds of saviors. There are all kinds of promises. And then there's the savior. And there's God's promises. The true savior of the world gives everything he promises. God didn't create power so much as the means of ruling people, but to be in charge of their salvation so that nothing and no one can block you from getting what He promises you. That's what God does with His power. Even when He clears out evil, do you know what He's doing that for? So that you can have peace and righteousness and life without evil and sin and pain and sorrow forever. He's going to serve us with everything He is and everything He has. So that's why Jesus says those crazy things like the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's what happens when God acts for His own glory. When God acts to advance and expand the glory of His name, you and I get life and peace and joy and salvation forever and ever and ever and ever. That's why God overturns power and pulls people down from their thrones and renders it useless when it comes to bringing His Son into the world. I won't use anything you have to give my salvation to you. So don't try to offer me anything. Just take what I give. That's what I do. It's what I love to do. See, He's for you. He doesn't approve of your sin. It's not what I mean. Beloved, He came to save you. Jesus came the first time not to condemn the world. See, that's already done. Adam took care of that. The first Adam took care of condemnation. The second Adam, He takes care of salvation. Jesus lacks nothing that you need this morning. First and foremost, He forgives sins. So your sins have been paid for. They've been paid for. You're forgiven. Confess them. Agree with God about them. And receive the gift. He gives you His righteousness. So, you, you know what that means, really? It's not just forensic in heaven, that before God the books are clear because you have Christ's righteousness. That is true, praise God. It also means you don't have to win anything ever again. Ever. So you're accepted by God. You're accepted by God. You're accepted by God. You don't have to impress anybody. You don't have to use anybody. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to meet anyone's standards or expectations for you. Most of all, not God's. That's what Jesus came to do. All of that for you. For you. God is satisfied with you because of Jesus. And He is enough for you.